This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for November 5th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we share the most interesting news and research published in the science family of journals. First up, we have Meredith Wadman. She's a staff writer for science. We talk about fortifying food with folic acid. Around 80 countries add the synthetic B vitamin to their food supply. The idea is to prevent certain kinds of birth defects. This year, the UK has decided to add the supplement to their flour. Europe is not. We talk about why. Next, we have a new radiocarbon curve. This is used for dating ancient organic materials, radiocarbon dating. The new curve has a ton more resolution and a few more thousand years of coverage. What does that get you? I talk with researchers Tim Heaton and Edward Bard to find out. For one thing, it gives you a shakeup of archeology, span but we also get new information about the processes that create radiocarbon in the first place. Things like solar flares and the Earth's magnetic fields. Around the world, about 80 countries add folic acid to their food supply in some way. This synthetic B vitamin is intended to prevent birth defects that occur extremely early in pregnancy. But not all countries do this. Meredith Wadman is a staff writer for science. She wrote this week about the UK's decision to supplement flour and why no European countries are following suit. Hi, Meredith. Hi, Sarah. What's the relationship here between folic acid, folate, and birth defects? Folate is a naturally occurring B vitamin that you get in many dietary sources, leafy greens, spinach, lentils, liver, which we all love. And it just is a normal component of food. Folic acid is a synthetic form of the B vitamin, and it is more readily absorbed, and it has the same effect at its endpoint in the body, which has to do with being involved with DNA synthesis and, and other important cellular functions. So if you don't get enough folate from your diet, Very early in pregnancy, the first 28 days after conception, you are at higher risk of having a baby with these so-called neural tube defects where the spinal 
cord, which closes normally uh, in the first 28 days of pregnancy, does not close properly. And the effects can be lethal, like a baby born without a brain, or they can be disabling, like the spinal cord not closing properly, leading to paralysis. Mm -hmm. This point about it happening very early in pregnancy means that not everyone is taking prenatal vitamins. Not everybody is getting this, the correct amount in their diet. And so if you're pregnant and you don't know it, you're not going to have the right folate levels. You're at higher risk if you are not taking folic acid supplements, 400 micrograms a day, not just in early pregnancy, but beginning 12 weeks prior to conceiving because it takes some time for these folic acid levels to reach ideal levels in the body where they will prevent neural tube defects. So this was shown to be important way back in 1991 when a, a famous British epidemiologist named Nicholas Wald and others demonstrated that giving women folic acid supplement pills during pregnancy just dramatically reduced the incidence of neural tube defects by around like 80%. But believe it or not, 30 years later, his home country is now going to be adding folic acid to white flour. And so it took a very long time for the UK to get to that point. How common are neural tube defects or, you know, these related pathologies in places where supplementing isn't happening? In a key group of European countries, about 19 of them who report to a registry that really tracks these birth defects, it's about 10 affected pregnancies for every 10,000 pregnancies. Here in the States, where we've been fortifying our flour since 1998, the prevalence is uh, 30% less at about 7 in 10,000 pregnancies being affected. Yeah, there's a very good graph showing the before and after for a good selection of countries in this story. It's a big change. And in some of the countries in Europe that aren't doing this have a much higher rate than 10 in 10,000. There's variation. In Bulgaria, it's 22 affected pregnancies for every 10,000. In France, in 2019, it was 14. So it's variable and it can get quite serious. Now, it needs to be said that many of these pregnancies are then terminated in Europe, about 8 in 10 affected pregnancies, which is a, a very high termination rate, which of course has its own trauma and stress associated. If so many of these affected pregnancies are being terminated in Europe, they're not actually seeing 10 and 10,000 babies born with neural tube defects. Right. So you're not going to see a lot of kids in wheelchairs with spina bifida, which is the neural tube defect where the spine doesn't close because they're not being born because they're being terminated. So there's not such a visibility as you might have in, for instance, a country like Ethiopia. And we haven't even talked about the rest of the world where these birth defects are, again, an order of magnitude more common than they are in Europe. Not seen, no problem. And of course, what's happening are, are these terminations, which you can be sure are a problem for couples who conceive a, a baby who's affected. This took more than a decade for the United Kingdom to decide to do. What was the holdup? What were some of the considerations for and against fortifying flour with a B vitamin like this? The UK concerns were similar to those that I think have held back European countries as a whole, not one of which has mandated fortification of typically flour with folic acid. And that is around concerns about can you get too much folic acid 
And the answer is at very high levels, like an order of magnitude higher than what is present in your typical 100 gram serving of fortified flour in, in a piece of bread, they can or have been hinted to lead to possible growth of pre-existing cancers, possible cognitive decline in the elderly. Now, this is really not going to happen. You could not get to that kind of toxicity, and it's disputed, in fact, that it exists. There needs to be more research done, but you can't get to that kind of toxicity on the much smaller amounts of folic acid that are added to foodstuffs. The U.S. has been doing this since the 90s. We might have noticed if there are these changes in the population. Right. What if there was suddenly a huge wave of far more elderly people becoming demented or far more people developing cancer? And that's just not what we've seen. My sense from your story is that it's not just, oh, maybe this particular synthetic B vitamin might be dangerous. It's more just kind of an ethos of not putting things in food that aren't already part of them might be some of the problem, some of the holdup in Europe. That's definitely true. Adding not naturally occurring substances to food is really looked at very much more carefully in Europe than here. So with the really weak evidence here for side effects from supplementation, what else can be done to prod some of these countries along to more strongly consider fortification? You know, it's a problem of getting politicians' attention and keeping it. What's the payoff for an elected politician who is looking at the very short term of preventing a problem that really isn't even seen very much in his or her society? It's very hard to make that urgent case in front of legislatures and parliaments. And by the way, every European country has the power, should they choose, to just mandate this fortification, but they are again choosing not to. And some are really actively opposing it, like Germany, for instance. Yeah. Another option is that people take the supplement as a pill. I remember I've seen billboards. Are you considering pregnancy? Please take a supplement. But it does seem much more, you know, catch as catch can and not everybody suspects they're pregnant for a while. Half of pregnancies are unplanned and yeah. you may not be paying attention at all. Not to say not beginning to take folic acid supplements 12 weeks ahead of trying to conceive, which is really what the public health guidance states almost uniformly around the world. Do you see echoes of some of these public health debates that are going on right now with COVID, this idea that everybody takes something in their food so that a certain class or certain group is protected? Yeah, because truly it's more likely to be poorer women, women of color who are less likely to be, you know, at the CVS picking up their 400 milligram supplement bottle, either through lack of knowledge or lack of access. And in fact, the Latina population in this country is affected by neural tube defects at a higher rate than white and African-American populations. That also has to do with dietary sourcing and, and more reliance on cornmeal than on something like white bread, which might more conceivably be bought by, say, lower socioeconomic status women in this country. Thanks, Meredith. You're so welcome, Sarah. Meredith Wadman is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for researchers Tim Heaton and Edward Bard. We talk about updating the radiocarbon curve and shaking up human history. 
Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. We talk a lot about radiocarbon dating on this podcast. How old is this bone? How old is this wood? Basically, what what we're talking about is living things take up carbon from the environment, both carbon-12 and carbon-14. Once the organism dies, it stops taking up anything, and the carbon-14 begins to decay. Looking at how much is left of the carbon-14, you can tell how old your sample is if you have the right calibration curve. That is telling you what the atmosphere was like back in the day when this organism was alive. But knowing how much carbon-14 versus carbon-12 was in the air back in the day is not easy. It's not constant, and it's not the same around the world. Tim Heaton is a senior lecturer in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Sheffield. He and his colleagues wrote about rewriting the radiocarbon curve and what the new curve means for history. Hi, Tim. Hello. We should mention that your colleague will be joining us in a bit to discuss the implications of changing the curve. But for now, you and I are going to talk about how the curve was changed, how that was accomplished. So first off, why did this need to be redone? Why redo the radiocarbon calibration curve? I work in a big project called INTCAL, and there are about 30 of us. And we try every four or five years to produce an update as new data comes out, we try and include that new data. And as our knowledge about Earth system modeling improves as well, we try and incorporate that sort of information in to improve our INCAL estimates for the Northern Hemisphere, the Southern Hemisphere, and also the surface ocean. Now, you say every four to five years, but this recalibration took seven years. Yes, this recalibration was was a big one. We had an awful lot of new data, and we also tried to redo some of the statistical methodology to try and bring all these different data sets together. What's different about the kinds of data that were pulled in for this curve recalibration than previous ones? Most importantly, we've got a lot more data in total for the new curves. I think we have about 15,000 measurements. Probably most notably, we've had improvements in the way that we can measure radiocarbon in our samples and new advances in AMS or accelerator mass spectrometry, which means that we can measure really small samples of radiocarbon. So now we can measure individual tree rings 
So that's meant that we can get a lot more precision and detail on short-term variations in radiocarbon. You also were able to go back further in time with this new curve. How was that possible? We've only gone back a little bit further than the previous curves, but hopefully we've gone back better. Recently, people have found a new stalagmites. Uh, so stalagmites contain calcium carbonate, so they also record the carbon kind of in the atmosphere. Found new stalagmites in Hulu Cave in China that extend a long way back in time. I think they extend to about 55, 60,000 years ago of measurements of radiocarbon. And they're paired with an independent way of dating the stalagmites. So we've been able to incorporate those new observations into our curve. And, and that's kind of produced a new backbone for the INCAL curves. And then as well as that, we've been able to find some uh, floating tree rings in particular, there are these trees called kauri trees that are in New Zealand. How do you spell that? Kauri, it's K-A-U-R-I. And they lived an awful long time ago. Some of them uh, lived 50 odd thousand kind of years ago. And when they died, they fell over, some of them, and they sunk into the ground. It was quite boggy around the kind of ground. And then they got encapsulated in soil and prevented from decomposing because they didn't have too much oxygen hitting them. And then people have, have dug up recently these cowrie trees. If you've got a lot of money, you can make a table out of these cowrie trees. You can have a 55,000-year-old cowrie tree table. But you could also get radiocarbon dates from them. You dig them up and then you can measure in the tree rings the radiocarbon. You don't know precisely when these trees died. You only know relatively because you, you can count the tree rings and say, well, this tree ring is 100 years older than this other tree ring. So those new cowrie trees, we have to splice in with our other records using their relative ages. But we don't obviously know their absolute ages. So we have to see where they fit best and sort of splice those in using the rest of the old data that we have. And is that why they're called floating tree rings? Yes, they're floating in time. So we talked about more precision, more samples, going back further in time. That's a lot of change. It seems like a big shift. What do you think, looking at all the domains that use radiocarbon for scientific investigation, what do you think some of the biggest impacts are going to be from this? I think one of the really nice things I find about this project is that we don't always know. It's, it's really nice to be able to sort of see papers where they've used your calibration curves in novel and interesting ways. Yeah. I'm a mathematician, so I like some of the ability to improve the, the models. So I, I think I'm biased there. But it's really interesting as well to see the, the archaeology and the, the geoscience. Thanks, Tim. Uh, we're going to see next what your colleague Edward Bard thinks is the biggest impact of the calibration curve. Thanks for having me and thanks for your questions. Sure. Tim Heaton is a senior lecturer in the School of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Sheffield. Now that we know how the radiocarbon calibration curve has changed, we're going to talk about what it means. We have Edward Bard. He's a professor at Collège de France. Hi, Edward. Hello. So I was talking with Tim Heaton about the seven-year-long project of remaking the calibration curve. 
It's been a year since it's been made public. Can you take us through some of what you think are the most important implications of the changes that we're seeing, how the recalibration is playing out? And I think it's important to note for the audience here that this isn't just about human history. It's also about the sun, Earth's dynamo, and of course, climate. Where should we start? Radio carbon is, first of all, a chronometer. I mean, it is very important in prehistory, in to date many objects. But at the same time, carbon-14 is not accurate. And this is the reason why we, we need a calibration. It's not accurate. And the difference between a radiocarbon age and the true age is, in fact, not random. It's linked to processes, to geophysical processes or to geochemical processes or even to astrophysical processes. By looking at the difference between true age and carbon-14 ages, we learn a lot about other processes that are creating, in fact, this bias. So we can use it to tell how old something is, but we're being so careful to track these fluctuations, and the fluctuations themselves are important. The carbon-14 level in the atmosphere is not constant through time. It is changing, especially with changes of the production of the carbon-14. I mean, the carbon-14 is produced in the upper atmosphere, in the stratosphere, mainly by cosmic rays, by galactic cosmic rays. The primary cosmic rays that are important for us are protons, and these protons can be deflected by all magnetic fields that surround the Earth, especially the solar magnetic field and also the Earth's magnetic field. So this is the reason why, uh, by studying the deviation of carbon-14 to true age, we learn much about the changes of the production of carbon-14 and the changes that are due to the solar activity or due to the the changes of the geodynamo. Mm -hmm. We're trying to get this really precise curve for dating, but then we can find those deviations and turn them around and use them as a probe of the system that creates the carbon-14 in the first place. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Can you see any changes to what we know about the Earth's dynamo looking at this recalibration? We learned quite a lot about changes, especially during a very prominent event that took place about uh, 40,000 years before the present, which is called the Lachan Geomagnetic Excursion. So we know it, in fact, from French research that has been conducted on lava flows. So we know that this was a time when the geomagnetic field was very weak. And this is the reason why we observed a large concentration of carbon-14 in the atmosphere during that time. But the details that are provided by carbon-14 are really very useful to constrain the timing of this event and the structure, the internal structure of this event. That is very interesting. We talked about how the sun influences the creation of carbon-14. When you look at this new calibration, can you spot any new facts about what the sun was doing over the last 50,000 years? Or are we able to narrow in on particular dates for solar activity? For this iteration, NCAL 20, we have increased, in fact, the resolution. And the solar activity changes are occurring at quite high frequency. So we need, in fact, to work at annual resolution. The previous NCAL curve were not as precise. And especially for the, for the recent past, we did not have so much annual resolution carbon-14 ages on tree rings. And this is key to study the 11-year sunspot cycle, but also longer-term changes of the solar activity. One thing that is coming out from the work is 
that we can reconstruct the solar activity over the past millennia. By modeling it, we can even calculate the solar activity and the solar luminosity, the total solar irradiance. The models that are used in climate, for example, for the IPCC, they're using the curves that we are producing with cosmogenic isotopes, with beryllium-10 and with carbon-14. So this is very important also for climate research. Yeah, can you go more into how this new calibration curve will help us model climate? There are different areas where the new calibration is very important. By having a very good chronometer, we can study even better the climate fluctuation because a lot of the archives that are used in paleoclimatology are dated by carbon-14. So if we have an accurate calibration, we can be very precise in the reconstruction of the paleoclimatic variation we have only touched upon the changes of the production of carbon-14. But carbon-14 is even more complex because the source of variation of the carbon-14 level in the atmosphere is not only linked to production changes that are modulated by magnetic field, but it is also due to changes of the carbon cycle. And the carbon cycle was very different 30,000 or 20,000 before the present, especially because during that time there was a glacial period. And we know that the biosphere plants on land were different from today. There was a lower biomass on land. There was more permafrost. The ocean also was dynamically very different. We had uh, more carbon in the deep sea. And the carbon-14 reference reservoir for all of the dating is the atmosphere. But the ocean is containing, in fact, 50 times more than the atmosphere. So clearly, by changing the carbon cycle, it's possible also to change the level of the carbon-14 in the atmosphere and the bias between carbon-14 ages and true ages. So we can use the carbon-14 recalibration curve to look at the carbon cycle 20,000 years ago. And then we can take that and use it to model what's going to happen with carbon going forward from now. Exactly. I mean, this, this is carbon-14 and, and the timescale that we are talking about is the only way to study some processes that are ongoing in the carbon cycle today and that are still unknown. For example, I was mentioning the permafrost and during the so-called deglaciation, the process that took about five to 10,000 years, we know that a lot of the permafrost that was stored on land melted. There are worries about the present-day permafrost, and we have this information that is embedded in the carbon-14 time series that can be used, in fact, to study this process with modeling. Let's not forget about the effect on archaeology. Do you see any big shifts in where people were, what they were doing with the new calibration curve? It's a bit unfortunate, in fact, for archaeologists and prehistorians, because each time that we have a new calibration, they need to reassess, to recalculate all of their calendar ages. It's quite important if we want to study differences, phase lags between events, between the arrival of man, for example, in North America and the killing of, of big mammals. You need to reassess the chronology in order to be accurate. One of the main impact will be on the overlap between the two populations of Neanderthals and modern humans, about 45,000 years before the present, we know that this is a time where two populations were present in Europe, and it's very important to work with the calibration of C14 to have an accurate picture of the overlap or the difference in time at different sites. The new iteration provided with NCAL 20 is really key to study that time period. Yeah, it seems like the greater precision, the ability to look year by year is going to be really interesting as people dive into that. 
Exactly. We should also touch on what's going to happen in the next iteration of the carbon recalibration. The Antel Group is really busy to plan for the next <laughs> the next iterations, but but it, it's I mean it's not tedious. But we need, in fact, to measure more and more, find new archive, find new trees, find new uh, speleothems, find new uh, marine archives. This is an ongoing process. The only key thing that we did not mention, and I don't know if if Tim did, is ten years ago came a, a discovery that the carbon fourteen can also behave on a very rapid, on an annual, can have uh, jumps, in fact, at an annual timescale, a jump in the production. And this was based on research that was performed by a group in Japan, and this has been confirmed. And more of these events have been found in the trees that are measured in the frame of ANCAL, and we have discovered many other of these events that are very brief, in fact, but they correspond, in fact, to a massive change of the production of carbon-14. The present theory about them is that they correspond to massive injection of particles. They are called solar particle events, and they are completely unprecedented. Astronomers have not seen them over the past decades, so there is no instrumental record of that. But these SPE events are really a true new thing. And this is the reason why in the, the frame of ANCAL, we want to remeasure all the trueings at annual resolution. This is a massive effort. I mean, if you can consider we have 50,000 years to sample, and in the future, we need to do that at annual resolution. For the moment, it's not done. But this is the only way to discover these very special events that also are part of the solar variability. Let me ask you a little bit more about that. So there was this discovery of fluctuations year to year in carbon-14, and the thought is that it's something happening with the sun. And when you say year to year, do you mean you'll have a spike one year out of 10? Or how frequent is that variation? For the moment, there are a handful of, of these events that have been discovered, but there are many more probably because for the moment, the record has not been looked at at uh, sufficient precision and resolution. I mean, here it's only the resolution. We need to measure the carbon-14 in every ring every year. And this is a massive effort, especially because you need to do that at very high precision, very high accuracy on tree rings, and you need to replicate that in different trees at different latitudes and different uh, locations. But this is happening. This is a, a spike that is happening in one year, in fact. 50,000 samples would not be enough, basically. No, it's not. You need uh, probably uh, 10 times more. <laughs> wow. All right. Thank you so much, Edward. Edouard Bard is a professor at the Collège de France. You can find a link to the review we discussed at science.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org podcast. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site, 
to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.